0: Revelation 17, getting close to the end. And when we finish it up, we'll be going back to um, the book of Acts and then into Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and um, continue to make our way verse by verse through God's word. Revelation 17, I've entitled the message this morning, The Woman Who Rides the Beast. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names, of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having her hand on a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I was marveled with great amazement. Um, Let's set a a time frame for what's taking place here. Uh, Revelation chapter 17 occurs during the first half of the tribulation. And what we're doing right now, I want to give you a little bit of order of events because we're actually going back into the first three and a half years. Um, something that I hope happens before the end of the studies, the rapture of the church takes place. That'd be nice. <laughs> um, but it's so crazy out there these days. If people don't know the Lord and have that solid rock to stand on. I don't know how they can handle life. I mean, even us as believers uh, have hard days, get depressed, we have friends that we know and love. Uh, They don't have a biblical perspective of, of what's taking place in the world today. They're confused. Suicides are off the charts. People are losing their jobs. One out of five churches are closing down. I mean, it's it's crazy out there. What gives me hope is that the book of Revelation sets everything in order. It tells us what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and the good news is what happens when it's all over. And that is a thousand years where Jesus Christ will rule and reign, and the good news is we get to rule and reign with him. Don't think you're going to be sitting on some club playing a harp or anything like that. That's, that's not, not going to happen. We're told in Revelation 2 and 3, we're going to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. That's our future, and that's our hope. So what's going to take place next will be, I believe, prophetically, the rapture of the true church. And it's important that you understand what I mean by the true church. And because this Bible study is going to be slanted towards Rome, the last verse, we're going to see the destruction of Rome. And um, Roman Catholicism is going to be a main part of the study. But let me just say this. I know Roman Catholics that are born again. They're going to get raptured. I know Lutherans um, that are born again. They're going to be raptured. I know a lot of them that aren't. And go ahead, pick a denomination. And there are true believers. And so don't get the impression I'm just trying to single out Rome here. What we have in view in this chapter are those who are left behind after the rapture. They're gonna go to church and um, there'll be people there. And there'll be a lot of people who won't be there. So what we're entering into is... um, if you're taking notes, Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They think they're Christians. Uh, but he who does the will of my Father. What we have in chapter 17 is now we're going back into the tribulation. Um, the end of uh, the tribulation was um, chapter 16. And now we have chapter 17 and it's going back and basically what it's giving us is adding detail to events that happened during this, this period of time. Now, there's actually a word for this. I'll um, give you an example. In Genesis 1, we're given an account of the creation and the seven days describing God's handiwork. But then in chapter 2, The Holy Spirit lifts out the accounts of the creation of man, gets into more detail, giving us detail. It is known as the law of recapitation, and it runs all the way through the scripture. So that's what's happening here. Detail is being added to events during the first three and a half years. Everybody with me so far? Okay. With that being said, this morning... Um, We will look at several different aspects of this one-world religion. We know there has to be a one-world government, and we know there has to be a one-world religion, and that's what this chapter is really about, this one-world religion. And um, we'll look at its beginning. Uh, We'll look at the Lord's warning to the church now of of um, this church. Um, We will look at the first 300 years of the early church. Um, The change that took place after Constantine comes into power in about 312 AD. And finally we're gonna see the fate of this church. Right now um, we are not in that time frame. So as we look at the first five verses, um, we have um, in Revelation seventeen one through five, we've read it, a woman sitting on a beast. The woman is um, basically this false church. The beast that she is riding upon is a picture of the Antichrist. And so they're coexisting up to a certain point. But the Antichrist is only going to put up with this religion for only a period of time. And we'll get into that as the study unfolds. But let's look at the warning, first of all, um, concerning this church. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2. Of course, the first three chapters are the seven letters to the seven churches I want to read about the church of Thyatira. I believe this is where Roman Catholicism had its roots. And um, I'll be putting something on uh, a screen shortly. But let's pick it up in chapter 2, verses 18 to 26. It says, To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, they are more than the first. So to their credit, uh, they've done many good things. Is basically what's being said here. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, they just gotta stop And remind you that Jezebel married Ahab. She introduced Baal worship into Israel that was completely dedicated to worshiping the Lord and the Lord only. And um, you remember the big knockout fight with uh, um, Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, on Carmel. Well, what's being said here to this church is he's likening Jezebel because um, Jezebel brought idolatry into Israel. This church that's being talked about here is bringing idolatry into the church. It's a parallel. And using Jezebel as an example, she calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality. Now this is in a spiritual sense. Um, not a physical sense, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she would not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed of those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Literally, I believe he's saying to this church, if you don't get rid of the false teaching, if you allow it to continue, if you allow it to exist you're going to be left behind. And I'll get to describing that later and literally telling this church they're going to go into the great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, in contrast to that, if you look over at the church of Philadelphia, um, Philadelphia is one of two or three that has nothing bad said about it. Um, But if you look at verse 10, the Lord says to the Church of Philadelphia, because you have kept my commandment to preserve, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. There's never been a world war that has covered every nation or events that have encompassed the whole world. This verse here is telling me that the church that had little strength Um, but kept the word of God, verse 4, did not deny my name. Um, He's going to give them an open door of ministry. But more importantly, he's going to take them out so that they're not a part of the trial that's going to come upon the whole world. And what we have in view here is the tribulation. So how are they going to be um, removed to test those who dwell on the earth? We're going to be raptured. That's how they're going to be kept out. The true church, um, we're told, will be, we're going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that quick, and we're out of here. I was hoping it'd happen right now, but it didn't. (laughs) So, do you see the contrast? They simply were in the Bible, they simply loved the Lord, and they understood that they were saved by grace and not by works. That's simple. That's doable. In contrast, there's all this other false teaching that's in the church of Thyatira. And he says, you guys better get rid of it because if you don't, you're going through it. So there, here we have this contrast. And um, let's uh, look at uh, 18 to 26. I want to go back to verse 26 for a second. Um, I got sidetracked with uh, Jezebel. 26 tells us, hold fast what you have till I come. Uh, there are some who do not hold to this doctrine. He's going to spare them. But in verse 26, I got this underline. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. What I have underlined here, he who keeps my works. And one of the places I'd like you to turn at this time is John chapter six, verse 28 and 29. Then he said to them, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They wanted to know what, it, what does it take to get to heaven? What kind of works do we have to do? The Lord tells them in the next verse, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent, period. Period. Do you see the period at the end? What is the work of God? That you believe that God has sent his son into the world. That's the work of God. That's his work versus what? Now, now go to um, um, Romans chapter 11. Got my order mixed up there a little bit. And we'll simply look at verse 6. This is so important, my friends, in order to be free in your walk with, with the Lord. When the Lord says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, it all comes down to understanding this verse that we're gonna read next. Romans 11, verse six tells us that, um, and if by grace that it is no longer of works, we're talking about salvation here, otherwise grace is no longer Grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. In other words, you can't have it both ways. Either you're saved by grace or you're saved by works. The problem with the church of Thyatira is they had all these other things that were attributed to you having salvation. Um, There really was... um, no Roman Catholic church um, for a little after about 300 A.D. Um, The Christians were persecuted for the first uh, 300 years. All the disciples were martyred, uh, all except John. I did a little research on it. And during the first 300 years, Uh, The enemies of the Christians, of course, was Rome, but they were emperors, they were Caesars. And they were, in the research that we did, there were six million Christians that lived during that first 300 years. Of those six million, two million of them were martyrs. Two million people. And as uh, we did a little bit more research, we wondered, well, I wonder how many Christians have been martyred since the beginning. There are 70 million Christians that have died for doing what you're doing this morning, going to church, just because they believe in Jesus Christ. 70 million people since the time of the Lord. Now, I'm gonna put something up on the screen because the Christians had to go underground of course, it tells us how they were martyred. What you're looking at here is uh, a white wall. No, there it is. I've, I've been in this place. It's the catacombs. All the things that you could go and see in Rome, this is what I remember the most. Um, there was a group that was in front of us when we when, when we went down into the catacombs, And the guy that was doing the talking kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. And I started fidgeting, fidgeting, and fidgeting. And the guy who oversees the thing saw that this guy's talking too long and there's other groups that need to come through. So he comes up to me and he said, how would you like to see a place that nobody else gets to see because this guy's talking on and on and on and on. I go, yeah? Yeah. So he takes, us in, he takes us to a place that tourists usually don't go. And what you're seeing there uh, are beds uh, that's cut out of stone. And so we were walking. Uh, they had lights that were on. And all of a sudden we came into this room, um, a lot smaller than this one. Maybe it would fit. Um, they, they would have different ones. And it's where they would actually meet So we had our own Bible study in a place that nobody else ever got to go to before, all because of this long-winded guy. (laughs) But my point in all of this is, if you were a believer during the first 300 years, you either, Caesar was God, or Jesus was God. And if you would not bow your knee to Caesar, and I'll get into this more, you were put to death. And that's that's the, the um, um, it's often said that the seeds of, seeds of the church were actually laid with the blood of the saints that were martyred during this period of time. But then something happened. We don't know for sure if it was genuine or not, but in 312 AD, Emperor Constantine supposedly sees a sign in the sky, a cross, and supposedly becomes a believer and he changes pagan holidays into Christian holidays. And the killing of the Christians at that point came to an end. He himself claimed to be one. Now, from this is a classic of, uh, if you've ever heard, it, it's called it, um, Two Babylons. It's written by uh, Alexander Hislop And basically it traces from Nimrod um, all the way to Rome. And that's why they call it the two Romes. And I'm going to read just a paragraph um, concerning the changes that he made. And uh, for the next couple minutes, I'm going to sound like the Grinch who stole Christmas, okay? (laughs) So if you got a Christmas tree, don't get too uptight about it as uh, I get into this here Um, what he did is he took Constantine took pagan holidays and he Christianized them what once was pagan now becomes um, Christmas and so where does Christmas come from well it came about and I'm reading from his up here that Christmas was originally a pagan festival is beyond all doubt the time of the year and the um, ceremonies with which it is still cel- celebrated proves its origin. In Egypt, the son of Isis, the Egyptian title for the queen of heaven, was born at this very time, about the time of the winter solstice. The very name by which Christmas uh, pop- popularity Um, known among ourselves as Yule Day. Are you guys familiar with Christmas being called Yule Day? It proves at once its pagan and Babylonian origin. Yes, the Babylonians named for an infant or little child, Yule. And it happened to be on the 25th of December. Um, Yule Day, the child day, and the night that preceded it, Mother Night, long before they came into contact with Christianity, that sufficiently proves its real character. Far and wide in the realm of paganism was this birthday observed. This festival has been commonly believed to have had only uh, astronomical character referring simply to the uh, Completion of the sun's yearly orbit around the earth. So every year at the winter solstice, actually, it was a pagan holiday, and what Constantine did is he just made it Christian. The very same thing with Easter. And um, um, this has been going on um, ever since. Um, Constantine uh, uh, changed this pagan holiday. Now, let's um, put this on the screen. As time went on, on many uh, Catholics, what they began to add to the church, I'm gonna put up on the screen right now. And when we're in Revelation two, and it says unless you repent of your sexual immorality, now we're gonna give specifics. So what you're looking at here is tradition, Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, The first one you see there in 431 is infant baptism. And um, we had a baby dedication this morning, little Isaiah, who turns one tomorrow. And um, when I was praying for him, I prayed for mom and dad first, that he would be brought up in the ways of the Lord, So when he reaches the age of accountability, what does that mean? Well, if you're a Jew, they figure it's around 13 years old. That's when they have a bar mitzvah. In a bar mitzvah, they consider that young man to be old enough to know right from wrong and therefore he's allowed to study with the elders, but not before. So in all that, what does it mean? That means if you have a baby, that is five years old, and he dies, that he immediately goes to heaven. God does not hold him accountable because they don't know the difference between right and wrong. The way, when you get to a certain point, you have this conscience and you go, this is definitely wrong. And uh, then you know what's definitely right. Well, I'm glad I'm not God (laughs) because who wants to draw that line? That's a fine line that only the Lord but we call it the age of accountability. So when we were praying for little Isaiah this morning, Lord, when he reaches that age of of accountability, give him a heart that is tender towards you, that he has now the ability to choose for himself. And when we have a baptism, I leave it up to the parents that they, uh, if they're gonna have one of their kids uh, that's younger baptized, do they understand what they're doing? Do they know the difference between right and wrong? So, top of the list here um, if you're not baptized at infancy, this is one of the conditions for salvation. Number two, Mass began purging of sin, prayers for the dead, prayers to Mary, worship of image, uh, declaring saints, mandatory Mass. In other words, if you don't go to church, it's a sin. I forget which degrees because they have different degrees of sin. Uh, The celibacy of the priest, boy, has that got them in trouble over the years. Um, The rosary uh, invented. The inquisition, now I'm going to come back to the inquisition, but I'm not going to do it right now. Uh, Indulgences were sold. In other words, um, you could actually pay money, Light a candle, and by doing so, you could shorten the time of one of your loved ones getting out of purgatory. Just think that one through. And if it's true, which person here wouldn't empty their bank account? If I believe that, I certainly would. If My mother or father, who I'm told they didn't make it, they got still some time in purgatory to go. You could shorten that time by selling indulgences, this built St. Peter's Basilica, one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. And uh, then there's transubstantiation. Um, we had communion this morning. Transubstantiation can only be performed by a priest. Um, they literally, they usually have a little something on their hair so in case Jesus drops, he doesn't fall to the floor because they believe that the bread at communion, when the priest blesses it, it actually becomes literally the body and blood of Christ. Now for a Jew, this is unthinkable. Drinking blood? Uh-uh. That's definitely not kosher. So, but that came in 1215, confession to a priest, uh, forbidding to read the Bible, purgatory, tradition given um, authority, adding books to the Bible, Mary being born without sin. The popes are infallible. Mary can save you. Mary's blood never decomposed, she was taken to heaven. These things are not accepted by Christianity because they're not in the Bible. These are man-made traditions. Now go back in your mind to Revelation two where he says unless you get rid of these traditions, the sexual immorality, and you trust in these things to get you to heaven, you won't. You're gonna go through a period of time, and the, that's basically what Revelation 2 was about. All right, back to Revelation chapter 17. Verse six tells us, first of all, John's blown away, marveled, great amazement. Why? Because it's this supposedly this church Is responsible for killing Christians, the woman on the beast, this religious system. And we read in verse six: "I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." And when I saw it, I marvelled and goes, "How can this be? They're Christians that are 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 killing other Christians." Let's go back to here to the Inquisition and um, what happened in eleven eighty four. Um, we have the Inquisition and the Crusades. Bear with me as I read a paragraph about Pope Urban and one other one. Pope Urban II, 1088 to 1099, inspirer of the First Crusade, decreed that all heretics were to be tortured and killed. That became a dogma of the church, acclaimed as the angelic doctor. Even Thomas Aquinas taught that non-Catholics, or heretics, could, after a second warning, be legitimately killed. His exact words are, they have merited to be executed from the earth by death. So if you didn't do it the first time, You didn't get a second chance. The popes now, the popes themselves were the authority behind the Inquisition. Uh, They wielded the power of life and death even over emperors. Uh, Had any pope opposed the Inquisition, he could have stopped it during his papacy at least. Where do we read the pope's thundering anathemas? Everybody understand what the word anathema is? It means eternal damnation. If a pope pronounced an anathema upon you, it means you are eternally damned. That's what the word anathema means. If the pope, I guess, a secular authority uh, who imposed so many and such gruesome deaths upon their victim, never. Civil magistrates would have uh, desisted from these loathsome murders in order to save their own souls. You see your souls at stake, not just your life. Uh, but papal orders to stop the Inquisition never came. Is everybody familiar with uh, the term the Crusades and the Inquisition? If they haven't, just do your homework on that because uh, that's a, a, a large part of the, the history of Roman Catholicism. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 at this time and let's look at the beginning and I'm gonna put a picture up on the screen of what the Romans considered to be their first pope. The picture here that you're looking at is at St. Peter's Basilica around that area and it comes from Rome. Matthew chapter 16 takes place um, in the northern part of Israel, Israel, a place called Caesarea Philippi. And if you look at verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And some said, well, some think you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had a divine revelation. And I say to you that you are Peter. Now, the word Peter there is Petros, it means stone. And on this rock, a different Greek word here, is the word Petra. And what we're talking here is like the rock of Gibraltar. Okay, so as I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of um, Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound on in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on earth. Roman Catholicism, with this picture here, is declaring that the first pope, um, who was married by the way, <laughs> has the keys to the kingdom and that's why this statue is here. But that's not what's being said here at all. When we go to Caesarea by and do this Bible study, I point out the word for Peter here is a little stone. You're a little stone. But the word rock is different. But they're assuming that Peter is the rock. No, the rock is a Petra, and he's referring to himself. I will build my church. The my and the rock go together. And... um, they said, well, he was saying this to just Peter. Now, if you turn the page to chapter 18, he's talking to all the disciples, and he basically is telling them the same thing, that um, they have the authority just as much as Peter did in um, forgiving a person's sin. So let's go back to. Um, there have been two hundred and sixty popes since Peter. The current pope is Pope Francis. Now, hang in here with me. We just read um, some things about the numbers, and um, and the Inquisition and the, the amount of people that died. This pope, um, Pope Francis, has declared that everybody's saved and everybody's going to heaven. Now that's a long way from a manathema, and it's a long way from all these traditions where now there's no hell, there's no purgatory. So he's done away with all of that and now he's saying that everybody is going to be saved. Now, will you let me do a little rabbit trail here? (laughs) As we think this through, and if there's gonna be a one world religion, don't you think there would have to be some compromise and change within Roman doctrine, as far as it pertains to the traditions that are there? If there's gonna be a one world religion, and we're gonna find out that it's gonna be headquartered in Rome, that means you have to become a universalist. And you have to be telling people that all people are going to be saved. Do you know that that's what Pope Francis is saying? Everybody is going to heaven. What about the inquisitions? What about either you bow to the pope, you're, you're a heretic, what, what's all that? What happened in purgatory? And so what I see happening today and this is Dwight's speculation now is that I believe Pope Francis has the possibility of being the, the false prophet spoken about and I believe he has the credentials and I really do believe it's that light and he has, he has the doctrine because if, if you're the Pope you could add to and you can take away from in Roman Catholicism, the Pope has the authority to do that. He's the vicar of Christ. And if he wants to change something, he can. And if he wants to add something, he can do that too. All right. Um, let's go back to chapter 17. Wow, we made it all the way up to verse 7. Amazing. It, it gets quicker from here, so don't worry too much. Verse 7 and 8. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and 10 horns. The beast that you saw was and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world When they see the beast, notice that was, and then he is not, and yet he is. What does that mean? Turn back to Revelation chapter 13, and let's look at verse 3. In Revelation 13, the beast is actually killed. We read in verse 3, And I saw one of the heads that had been mortally wounded and a deadly wound was healed and the world marveled and followed the beast. So what is it saying? It's saying that he he is and then he is not. That means he died and then yet he is. And that's what, when you go back to chapter 17, the one who rises out of the bottomless pit. So what do we have a picture of here? We have a religious system that is connected with the beast, the guy that was, that he was not, but now he still is. And so what the angel is doing for John is explaining who the Antichrist is and what we want to put together here is they're in union. We have a one world religion and we have a one world leader and they are together. And that's simply all that's being um, pointed out here. Turn with me too. so just, it should be clear, but um, Revelation thirteen one um, tells us, I stood on the sands of the sea and I saw a beast rising out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. So again, we want to make the connection uh, here also. Um, and his heads were blasphemous names. Well, that's exactly what what John is seeing here. All right, verses nine and 10. Here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. All right, um, go to the last verse here. How many of you have ever heard the terminology that Rome is a city of seven hills? Yep, that's, how, that's one of the things that it's known as. It's the city of seven hills. So he says, Here's a person who has wisdom. In other words, figure it out. Where is this taking place? And um, I'll make it very clear when we get to verse 18. But verse 19 is simply telling us where its headquarters is located, and it's the uh, the city that sits on seven hills. Uh, Verse 10 and you also saw seven kings, five have fallen. One is and another has not yet come and when he comes he must continue for a short time. Now there's a couple different thinkings on this and I'll give you both of them. What we have here in verse verse 10, seven kings, five have fallen and one is yet to come. It could be a reference to um, the world empires that have ruled the world beginning with Egypt. Egypt would be one. Assyria would be two, Babylon would be three, Medo-Persian four, Greece five, Rome six. There hasn't been a world empire since Rome. It fell from within. But the Bible says there's, in Daniel that there's gonna come a revived Roman empire with 10 toes, remember? So that is a possibility that uh, seven kings would refer to these seven World-leading nations that have actually dominated and ruled the entire world. It could also be a reference to the Caesars that were uh, beginning with Julius Caesar, then Tiberius, Caligula, uh, Claudius, Nero, Domitian, and uh, Domitian would have been the guy that would have been emperor or Caesar during the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. He would have been that. And when it says here in verse uh, 10, he must come, and when he comes, he he must continue for a short time. This is a reference to the Antichrist. All right, 11 through 13. And the beast that was and is not is himself also of the eighth and is the seventh, and he goes into perdition. And the ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. So now we're talking yet future. And basically, he's gonna, the world's gonna be divided into ten different sections. And there, each one of these ten sections is gonna have their own king. And it's in the future tense here. And it says they they will receive, they have no kingdom yet, but they receive authority for one hour as king with the beast or with the Antichrist. Now verse 13, uh, these are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. So the beast is worshiped. If you go back to um, uh, 13 verse 8, And it says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of Lamb, slain the foundation from the world. We have a problem. We have a religious system. And people are worshiping. And he doesn't want the competition. So Rome has to go. So what we're about to read next and start to wind things up here. Um, It tells us in verse um, 13 again, they have one authority and um, 14, they will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called, chosen and faithful. This is a reference to the second coming when the Lord um, puts an end to the antichrist's kingdom. In verse 15 and he said to me the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words the entire world. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot. Okay they were in unity up for a while. For the first three and a half years. But now they hate this religious system. And What Satan has always desired, and the reason for the fall, he even told the Lord when the Lord was tempting him, if you'll get down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I have the power to give them. Jesus didn't deny his claim um, that he's uh, the God of this world, and he simply wants to be worshiped. So we read these 10 kings and the Antichrist Um, tells us they will hate the harlot or this false religious system make her desolate and naked eat her flesh and burn her with fire no more Rome for God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled verse 18 and the woman whom you saw is that great city? Now we're talking about its location. The religious system is worldwide, but it has a central location. And that great, uh, the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. I'll close with a question Who was ruling over the earth when John wrote the book of Revelation in 96 AD? Answer? Go ahead and say it out loud. Rome. Domitian was Caesar. And now it's telling us um, that this particular city and where all the popes have been is actually Rome. So if I would recap briefly, some of you are thinking, Dwight, you can't recap anything briefly. <laughs> when in the back room whenever I said, okay, now we're getting ready to close up Uh, Rudy or Jerry says, well, that means another 20 minutes. (laughs) Now, basically what we have, in a nutshell, in chapter 17, is for the first three and a half years, this religious system. John sees it. He's appalled by it. He can't believe it. Uh, He's mystified, called Mystery Babylon. From Nimrod, who was the first dictator, all occultic activity started in Rome. And that's why this is called the two Babylon's. But it started in, uh, with Nimrod in the original Babylon. But its final one is going to be verse 18 where the city of, of Rome is going to be destroyed. Again, this is an insertion that is taking place through what we've already read. It only goes for three and a half years. Now, the world will only be worshiping one person, and that's the Antichrist, and the Lord's just gonna cut him loose. He's gonna let him have his three and a half years. But after that, oh, I like the ending of, of the, this wonderful book because our adversary, who has given you a lot of trouble, given me a lot of trouble, uh, the Lord's gonna take him And when he's judged, he will be cast into the lake of fire, we are told. And um, verse, I'll close with this, feel good verse in chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How's that for a friendly, happy Christmas message? (laughs) It does make me feel good, but you know what, guys? We know what's going on. We know what's going on. We know what's going to happen. We know that there are going to be a lot of people saved during the tribulation. And let me just again, because a lot of this is pointed at Rome, let me say again, I know born-again Roman Catholics. I know born-again Lutherans, um, other churches, Presbyterian Baptists, um, that are born-again and some aren't. Every true believer is going to be taken out from the great hour of trial. We call it the blessed hope. So in the midst of all this junk that's going on in the world right now, we still have hope no matter how bad a day may be going. Good place to close with an amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, it's an awful lot to take in as we look at chapter 17 of Revelation. But Lord, we're so glad that you lay it out with such clarity and you fill in and give detail of these events that transpire uh, in chapter 17 during his first three and a half years. Lord, we want to stand by grace and grace alone. Oh, we'll do works, but not to earn salvation. We will do works because we love you and you told us to be about our father's business. And you also said faith without works is dead. So, but just so we understand, Lord, it's all your grace that gives us our salvation. And for this we say thank you and amen.